The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It really is inspiring to see so many people interested in this topic and engaging in this work. Um, When I gave a talk last night to the general Common Ground public, uh, Wynne Frick, who's one of the co-founders with her husband of the center, mentioned that when One Breath at a Time came out in uh, 2004, they had me to the old the old center, which is where they lived on the street, um, and that they pract- they tried to turn people away. People, so many people came out, and and uh, what I knew from that that was one of the first times I after the book came out that that I gave a talk outside my home area. I live in Berkeley, California. What I knew was that people were not coming out because of me, because nobody knew who I was. (laughs) What they were coming out for was this this idea of Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. And and that was one of the moments when I realized that uh, this sort of had some legs. And uh, I started meditating before I got sober, and you know I tell some of this of my history in in some of my books, and and um, but I, by the time I did get sober in 1985, I I realized that uh, meditation wasn't going to be the fix that I had sort of imagined it would be when I first uh, started to practice. But when I came into my first meetings, and they had the steps up on the wall, and I saw step 11, I was kind of reassured. And I thought, okay, well, I don't understand most of what these steps say, but it says meditation, and I know something about that. But over the next couple of years, I discovered that very few people really knew how to practice, at least in the sense that I did, because I'd been on long retreats and I was a pretty serious uh, practitioner already. And um, and so when I was about three or four years sober, uh, I invited some friends, some male friends, some guys to start a meeting with me where and we would meditate for 20 minutes at the beginning of every meeting. And that was pretty radical at the time, you know, uh, in an AA meeting to meditate for 20 minutes. And, um, you know, and I would kind of suggest books to them and suggest places they could go on retreats. And uh, and uh, then that was in L.A. I got sober in Venice Beach. And uh, and uh, by that time I'd gone back to school. And when I, uh, I transferred up to UC Berkeley and moved to Berkeley, which, of course, is, you know, more of a Buddhist area than L.A., um, I found the same thing about the meetings. There was an 11-step meeting on every Sunday night that I went to, and people would meditate for five minutes, and then they'd spend an hour and a half talking about how hard it was to meditate for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, really, you know, we've got to do something about this. But I wasn't really in a position to do anything about it. I wasn't a teacher. Um, but over the years, then, 
you know, I started to think more and more about what, not just step 11, but what what the steps in Buddhism meant to me and how, you know, when I first got sober, I, I worked the steps in a very kind of traditional way and I didn't try to Buddhify them or anything. I just kind of left them alone and just tried to do them because I needed to stay sober and I figured that was what you were supposed to do. But after a while, I did start to think, well, I don't know what this really means, turning my will and my life over to God. Um, and and what, you know, I uh, my, sort of philosophically, I felt that I was a Buddhist. And I, I, do, I don't actually call myself a Buddhist. Like, um, but that's just a personal choice. But nonetheless, you know, I, I am philosophically aligned with those teachings. And I couldn't, you know, it was like, what is powerlessness of, that's not in the language of Buddhism? You know, certainly God, uh, as we understand God in the West, it wasn't a, uh, an idea in Buddhism. Um, inventory and all these things, just, I just kind of felt like I had to keep them apart. <laughs> I didn't want the... I, I guess I, I was afraid Buddhism might mess up my steps, actually. And I needed to stay sober. Um, yeah, that's, but I also wasn't going to let go of my Buddhism, you know. It was like, I, I love that. And, and so I just kind of kept them apart. But as I say, then gradually, it was just sort of like starting to ask these questions. And it was particularly... Uh, at the moment when I was on a self-retreat and I, and I was actually saying a prayer, like probably the serenity prayer, maybe even the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I'd been sitting a silent self-retreat for several days and my mind was really quiet. And the word God just kind of clunked. You know? It's just kind of like, don't, what? It, it seemed too dense uh, compared to the um, kind of uh, spaciousness of my experience, or the fluidity of my meditation. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to even language doesn't quite uh, work on this stuff. But it, in any case, I kind of came up against a wall with it, and and I started to play with other terminology. But that wasn't really the point. I, I use the word God today, uh, quite you know most of the time. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I'd rather other people didn't say it. Uh, <laughs> you know, because when I say God, I know what I mean, but I'm afraid that they mean something else. But I also realized that the point wasn't the word. It was what... It was the steps. It was the process. And it was over time that I came to see that really what I wanted to understand wasn't necessarily what, it, what the literal language of the steps meant, but rather what they were about, what was the process that, that they were describing. And you know, there were moments in my, in my step work when I realized... Uh, what we would say in the 12-step world is, 
God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. But (laughs) where I would realize that I had done something just because I was supposed to, and then there were all these results that came from it. Like, oh, now you've worked the steps you're supposed to be of service. And, you know, so I started to be of service, and all this stuff happened because of that. And it was like, well, they didn't tell me that that stuff was going to happen or that even that was why I was doing it, but they told me because it was the step. Um, So I realized that there was a, I guess, I don't know if I realized then, but I I, I see now that there was a a substratum to the steps that that was really... um, What was what was doing the work? What was bringing these changes about? And it wasn't quite in those words. And sometimes it wasn't in the it wasn't the thing that I did and the immediate result. Um, for instance, you know, making amends. I mean, this is a really good example. I think the n- step nine says we uh, made direct amends to such people, the ones we'd harmed, wh- whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. You know, and that's a fairly just uh, straightforward thing, difficult, but, you know, you kind of do it. You contact people, you apologize, you pay them back, you do what you can do. But that, doing that, there were one or two amends that were pretty powerful for me, but once I'd done that, it wasn't that, oh, I've done confession or I'm purified now because I've made amends to those people. The transformative effect for me was developing the capacity to admit I was wrong and to, be, and to apologize directly, to take on my own you know, failings. And what, the way I understand that is that what's happening in the steps is that self, Ego is being undermined. You know, and here's where Buddhism, of course, joins up. Right? You know, in this 12-step world, we say, you know, self-centeredness, that was our problem. You know, we had to be rid of it. In Buddhism, we say, well, that even that self is, is actually a creation, which really, when you think about it, if you're centering your life around something that doesn't exist, you really have a problem, you know. <laughs> and that is kind of the problem of self-centeredness. Uh, the why, why, the, why there's a kind of collapse when we're self-centered. There's, a, there's a, like a psychic collapse that happens to us in some way. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm, 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 see, I'm imagining it. And so that after effect of step nine is something that stayed with me for these 30 years. And it's, it's not the fact that I apologized to my brother or you know, paid back money to someone. That is relatively trivial compared to the internal transformation of being able to, be, to apologize and, and not being so attached to... to uh, my uh, how I'm viewed by people. There's a word for that. Um, 
you know, self-image and, and being able to let go of that. And that, to me, wow, that, that's what's happening in that process. And so that's one of the things that we're doing in meditation, right? We approach it in a different way. We don't have this um, so much of an outward process where we're, you know, writing something down and sharing it with someone, making amends, all that. It's more that we are watching the inner life or the inner experience and with the guidance of the Buddha and his you know, followers who continue to, to uh, try to strive to understand what he taught, with that guidance, we start to be able to see our experience, see our, the mind particularly, the mind-body experience, through a different lens. Right? It's not the lens of self, Again, it's this lens of uh, an, an objective lens. So we move from the subjective experience of self to an objective experience of self, which is interesting because we're <laughs> a, t- a typical paradox of Buddhism is that we're both stepping back and forward at the same time. And if that doesn't immediately make sense, I'll try to make sense of it. We're stepping back in the sense that we're looking at ourselves as an object. So we're actually creating a dual, dual, dualistic relationship with our own mind and with our thoughts and feelings. Oh, I'm having that thought. Oh, that's anger. Oh, that's sadness. Oh, that's resentment. Okay. I'm just observing those things, the stepping back. And at the same time, I'm stepping forward and Allowing myself to be to feel fully my experience, which normally I'm stepping back from that. You know, it's like normally I'm very close to and absorbed in my own thoughts because I'm identifying with it. This is me. I'm having this experience. I like it. I don't like it. I'm bored by it. Whatever. But my feelings are like, oh, you know, I'm having feelings. Okay, well, yeah, they're, they're probably there. We can do something about that. Uh, let's see. Drugs, you know. Basketball, you know. <laughs> so we're kind of flipping that. We're saying, okay, I'm going to step back from the thoughts, not identify with them so much, but I'm going to allow myself to feel this stuff. Um, and... And so in that process, there's again this disidentification with self, with ego, and less to protect then. When you're not identified, you don't have to protect it. When you think it's you, you damn well better protect it because, man, if it it gets injured, (laughs) you're in trouble. I think that's all I have to say. That's the best Dharma talk I could come up with. During the I actually didn't think that all up, but I got the triggers during the sitting. 
So that's just, uh, you know, an, uh, just hopefully a start for a conversation. Um, I, uh, I just kind of trust that this is a group that we can uh, have a nice dialogue with. I'm sure people have some thoughts or questions that we can get started with. And, uh, you know, if you want to ask about meditation as well or, or anything I've said or anything that you've been thinking about or, you know. Yes, hi. You laugh. <laughs> well, for instance, I'll use, I'll say God willing. And what I mean by that is if all the forces of the universe conspire to allow for that to happen. Or, you know, in specific circumstances, tomorrow I'm flying home, God willing. That because I'm not in control. So there's a lot of things uh, that are involved in that. So a lot of times, I'm kind of talking about the law of karma, you know, the power of karma, that, that is that the results of actions. Um, but when I talk about step three and turning my will and my life over to the care of God, to a great extent, I, as... Anita mentioned, you know, it's my my book, Burning Desire, is a lot of it's about the Eightfold Path. So the power of mindfulness, the power of intention, the power of uh, morality, um, and and other aspects of the Dharma. You know, the power of impermanence. Turning your will and your life over to the care of impermanence. You know, you've done it. You're doing it whether you like it or not. <laughs> it's just a question of whether you're surrendering to it, whether you're accepting it or not. So for me, the power, when we talk about higher power, it's actually just power. It's not necessarily higher or lower. I mean... Is impermanence a higher power or low? I mean, it's high, you know, it's it has power over me. Like I am constantly changing, even if I don't want to, um, and everything around me is constantly changing. Um, but the the issue isn't um, in terms of the third step, turning your will and your life over, which is really to, to me the crux of the God question in the steps. The, the question is, what's my relationship to impermanence? So if I'm not turning my will and my life over to impermanence, it means I'm fighting it or I'm struggling with it, I'm resenting it. It's like, why is my hair falling out, you know, kind of thing. Why, why am I getting old? Uh, all those. And, and that's, then suffering is created when I don't accept those things, when I don't turn it over. And when I do then there's a quality of ease. It's, there's no confusion around it. Right? So the Dharma, in the, in the largest sense, is what, I, is what I consider higher power. And the Dharma includes karma and the Eightfold Path and loving kindness and impermanence and, and on and on.
So, uh, which sort of sort of makes it so the higher power is higher powers, and um, and there's always a convenient one, you know, like there's always one that's relevant to a given moment. Um, And then there's just the truth of the way things are right now. You know, it's as, you know, Ajahn Sumedho famously says, it's like this. Yeah. You know, Monday night, May, whatever it is, 16th, at Common Ground is like this. It's just like this right now. What's my relationship to that? That's always the question to me. What... What's my relationship to how things are? Uh, because that's what determines whether I'm suffering or not. No. I have a question um, that might be helpful to other people as well. Um, I'm My program is Codependence Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a history of trauma, emotional and physical, and... Um, one thing that I've had a really difficult time reconciling, just because in my recovery program, um, a big part of self-care is boundaries, like setting boundaries mm-hmm. and um, saying no to what you don't feel comfortable or safe with. And But that involves protecting the self. So mm-hmm. with, given what you're saying about um, letting go of the self, like I really want to be able to do that, but how do I reconcile that with taking with good self care mm-hmm. and um, setting boundaries with people when I feel like they are overstepped? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a famous line. Can't think of who said it, but sometime about 35 years ago, some sort of Buddhisty person said, <laughs> "You have to have a self before you can get rid of yourself." And and the truth is, and that's not even accurate because if indeed the self is a construction, then there's nothing to get rid of. You know, what we're doing is seeing the truth of its insubstantiality. But we're really talking about two different forms of language and and sort of modes. When When we talk about Boundaries and protecting self. We're talking from sort of a Western psychological standpoint, and we absolutely have to have that in order to function in the world, and indeed in order to progress on a spiritual path. Uh, people who don't have boundaries on spiritual paths often wind up in cults. Those are, you know. That's a typical kind of, oh, you know, they just kind of believe anything, you know, just, and they're looking for this father figure typically who's going to, you know, tell them everything they need to do. And, and it's very unhealthy and, in fact, dangerous. Um, so it's not about this. Uh, when we're talking about this as a, a spiritual uh, um, an element of a spiritual path and spiritual development. We're not really talking about um, 
It's more of an internal experience. I don't think that what I described as not being attached to my self-image when it came to you know, being okay with apologizing to people, that's not not having a boundary. You know? In fact, it's maybe a healthier boundary. It's, you know, one of the things that I realized when I was doing my 12-step, doing my fourth step inventory, is that I had, and I didn't think that I could hurt other people because I didn't think I was significant enough or powerful enough to hurt other people, and then I, and I realized, oh, I did hurt other people. You know that. So that was, and I'm not sure how, how that quite relates, but it, you know, it's it's sort of like flipping a little bit. Um, so it's it's not about becoming a doormat. This isn't at all what sort of letting go of self, selfing is. Um, it's really it's more of an inner orientation towards, uh, you know, how we relate to the world and how we, how we, um, what it's it's a lot about what we want from the world, you know, that that need to be recognized or loved or all, which that's one of those codependent things, isn't it? <laughs> It's much more complicated than a lot of people I think know. it is. I <laughs> know. A, a set of behavior patterns that is different for everybody, yeah. really. Yeah. No, but, but, but I think it, it's, it's a very different thing that we're talking about. It's, I absolutely. Again, you know, there, there we get these ideas with spirituality that, like, oh, I'm just supposed to, like, love everybody and be real. You know, it's like about like nicey nice spirituality kind of. That's not that's not it at all. You know, so and it's important to distinct, distinguish between absolute truth, which is that there's no self, and relative truth, which is that you know I have a driver's license, and <laughs> and if you ask me for some ID, I'll show it to you. You know, that's this is who I am, but I know that that's just. You know, a convenient fiction helps us all to get along, um, and that's kind of uh, part of what we're talking about here. That that um, you know, you can be uh, very clear about what your boundaries are. I mean, in fact, the people that I know that I consider to be very evolved are, have very strong boundaries and protect their time, protect their energy. It's really important, you know. Um, but that's different from being attached to a sense of self and an identity you know, and clinging to that and needing to be seen for that. Right? You know, one of the ways that I like to talk about identity is, you know, when I'm sitting up here, I'm Kevin Teacher or whatever, right? When I get on the plane tomorrow, I'm Kevin Passenger. And nobody on the plane is going to say, oh, Kevin, could you give us a talk? You know, we'll just run a microphone through the PA system and we can all meditate. And then when I get home, I'm Kevin, husband, and father. And they definitely don't want to hear a talk. (laughs) That's been made clear. And those, 
and when we try to, but when we try to move through the world as this is who I am, and, you know, when you get on the plane and you're like, don't you know who I am? You know, oh, oh, my book, oh, my book just fell on the floor. Oh, yeah, this, you know, it's annoying, <laughs> and it's painful, <laughs> and to not, to not realize, oh, we just play these different roles, and and that's very different from having boundaries. You know, because I still, you know, when I'm in that pasture seat, I, I, I'm, it's my seat. And I'm not letting anybody share it with me. So that's, <laughs> sorry. That's Thank really you. Going so over, overboard that. there. Thank you. Get you next. Um, I, uh, I'm trying, I've been trying to think of a delicate way to ask this question. Um, do you, uh, if, if teachers uh, want us in the 12-step meeting to say the serenity prayer with the word God, uh, do you see, is there, I'm, I'm looking for what benefit or even how, you know, to, my heart doesn't just ignore it, you know, and I try to. Um, is Do you see any, I mean, what what we've been told is that uh, the teachers made a decision to use the You're talking about step here? language. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've kind of always been trying to deal with that and have requested to not use it, but uh, people feel we should. Some, you so know, it's like a some group people do. Kind of thing. I don't know. Well, I don't know why. It's just uh-huh. um, I, I wanted to know if maybe you... Uh, Want me to step in? <laughs> no. I thought you being the guru, maybe yeah. you had, had told them something that I didn't know. <laughs> That's right. I'm pulling all the strings. No, I don't. I don't know. I know nothing. I don't know nothing about it. But uh, you know, I would say if you don't want to say God, I would just skip it. Yeah. Or you could say fuck off. <laughs> okay, yeah. that's a good idea actually. Because skipping it doesn't. I mean, I don't say it, but still, it's always you know in my. What I do when I say right. God in a in a prayer is I, I actually let it be like this. Kind of thing, like God, and it's like so. Just let it. This kind of like some sense of this huge surrender. Just let that energy just go through me. Works for me. Thank you, um, and I might try the first suggestion too. Yeah. And if other people do, it might be interesting and yeah. helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. As you were discussing the previous question, Kevin, I, I thought of uh, from my uh, Al-Anon group, the goal was to get right-sized yeah. so that you weren't too big and stepping on other people and you weren't too small and being stepped on yeah. by other people. And then I thought of in the 12 by 12 where Bill talked about how um, at, in our addicted state, we either wanted to be on the top of the pile yeah. or we were going to be on the bottom of the pile. And the goal is to just to be in the middle, 
just be a worker among worker, a person among persons. Yeah. And, uh, and that seemed to relate to the question that was asked yeah. earlier for me. Yeah, exactly. It's like the middle way. We need like a frisbee mic. <laughs> Think of all the germs that are on that thing now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I have some, uh, I always <laughs> carry, you know, some, what you call it in here. Oh, you don't have germs up here. That's right, because it's so cold they all freeze. <laughs> I uh, I know from uh, reading your your books that um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> well from listening to your, your talks. Don't assume that there's anything that is what you read was true, right? <laughs> or that it's still true. So okay. To say that you know something from reading well, my books, it scares me when you all say right. that. This is this is actually pretty simple. Okay. Um, uh, I I know that you're a, a you're a musician, oh, well. and yeah, and I know that. Um, You've had the experience of being a musician uh, while being uh, addicted, and um, you have the experience now of being a musician who has been through a 12-step program. Um, I share the same thing. I musician, I, uh, you know, was a, a drunk musician, and uh, now I'm a sober musician. And I'm wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about your um, your experience uh, traveling from one realm to the other. Well, I don't play a whole lot anymore. And my creative energy wound up, you know, shifting more into writing. Um, but, I mean, I'm not sure what what I can say. Uh, I mean, when I got sober, I, I wasn't usually drunk when I was performing. I would often smoke pot because pot, as everyone knows, enhances music, which has <laughs> been a great loss, actually. But uh, if you meditate enough, you can get the same effect. It just takes a lot longer. Um, so I c- it wasn't that hard for me at first to sort of shift into, uh, okay, now I'm just drinking club soda like I did sometimes. And, um, but uh, eventually it just, uh, for me it was much more about my livelihood, you know, and that, that I'd been a, I'd lived in poverty and I'd, I had accepted that because I thought that all I was capable of doing and all I could tolerate doing was being a musician, you know, which was, you know, very much out of the kind of pathology that, that also made me feel that I always had to be loaded. You know, it was kind of like this very narrow idea of what was acceptable in my life. You know, I, very pretty early on in my teenage years, I decided like that I didn't want to work. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't want to have a job, job, and. Well, the only thing I cared about was music, so I'm going to be a musician. And 
and over time I got it in my head that I wasn't capable of anything else. And, and then as I say, you know, I, I also got it in my head that I needed to like smoke pot all the time and get drunk regularly, that, that I had to have all that stuff. And so when I got sober, it was kind of, first of all, a realization like, oh, I don't have to be loaded all the time. You know, and so that was like that gradual thing that happens in recovery, where you start to everything starts to broaden out. You know, I had dropped out of high school, and I thought I hated school. And then eventually, you know, at three years sober, I was like, maybe I don't hate school. So it's less about being a musician than it was about self-image and how I trapped myself in that self-image and that identity. You know, talking about like limiting concept of ego it's like that's who i am you know and uh so that that to me was the the challenge and the revelation was to see that i had a lot more possibilities i was actually talking with win who some of you i'm sure know uh, who who is a um a choreographer and and we were having dinner last night, and she was talking about how last year someone asked her to write a chapter for a book on the dance and the Dharma. And she was talking about how once she got into it, it started to feel like when she's working, when she's chore- doing choreography, she started to tap into something. And I said, you know, that's exactly how I feel about writing, that, it's, that I feel like I'm the way I felt making music. And... Uh, so what I kind of what I believe is that that when you have particularly with uh, the arts and cr- creativity that those things can really shift that it's they're not as specific to the art form as they s- might seem you know it's why you see a lot of like somebody like Joni Mitchell who's a great painter as well as a musician and it's just like uh, creativity is more of a open thing than than just form related and that's nothing to do with recovery or anything else but uh. thank you um your um talks and your book has evoked a lot of it's been very helpful and I want to thank you um i i've been in 12 step programs for a lot of years um relapsed um, had great difficulty when I first stepped into AA with God and the monotheistic um, stuff but along the way sort of I went to a lot of meetings and it sort of I said the Lord's Prayer I don't know maybe thousands of times (laughs) um, serenity prayer and I just came to Dhamma maybe five years ago, started reading it. Things like uh, dependent origination made so much sense to me, helped me understand there really wasn't a self there. And um, But in my sobering up, I really did, um, there was an, what I'm getting at here is the paradox of God for me. Maybe you could, I mean, that's how I have, maybe you talk about that a little bit. I don't know. About the paradox of God? 
Well, the way that you can, for me, I kind of had to, I've gotten to a point in my life where the Dhamma has really affected me a lot in the way I look at things. And in my daily practice, and I do sit, um, but I find myself not able to just divorce myself from some sort of personal higher power. Uh-huh. And that comes out of a lot of meetings and um, and some experiences like sobering up, distraught, water's edge, dark night. I, you know, I found myself where I was baptized as a child, but just sort of accidentally. And and there were some powerful experiences. Uh-huh. And I know that normally I would never talk about it in a Dhamma situation because it's like, you're weird, right. <laughs> you know? But that did happen to me. And for me, my, you know, didn't the Buddha say, be lighting to yourself? Doesn't your experience have to trump what everybody else thinks in the end? I mean, um, yeah. I don't know. I'm going to leave it at that because I, I, I just, uh, well, I, I think we have experiences and then we try to put understanding or language or interpretation in experiences and that's that's the purpose of language, you know, and and different cultures, different religions choose different archetypes and images and forms and belief systems. And as far as I'm concerned, that's fine, you know, because this isn't about being right, you know. Uh, Spiritual practice isn't about being right, like I have the right belief and you have the wrong belief. You know, what the Buddha makes clear, what he's interested in is ending suffering, you know, and helping people to end suffering. And there's no doubt that certain spiritual experiences feel very personal. That is, they feel like there's some connection with something. And whether that's, uh, you know, God or Kuan Yin. I mean, at times when I'm feeling particularly distressed, I kind of turn to Kuan Yin, uh, which is, I don't know if you know who that is, but the Bodhisattva compassion. And Really, I think Kuan Yin then is kind of like what I was taught were guardian angels when I was a kid. You know, I found myself saying the Hail Mary in the middle of a Buddhist retreat a few years ago, just because it was like what kind of called to me. You know, I think whatever is working, you know, and and some those things come. What works changes. You know, and if you get locked into, well, this is the right belief, right? I mean, this is one of the problems we have in the world, right? This is the right belief. So, and then people get heartbroken because they don't believe it anymore, but they believe it's true, but they don't, you know. I mean, when you read Mother Teresa's struggles, it's like, oh, the poor lady. She's like, never really had all this problem, like, believe in God. And, and then it was like tormenting yourself. It's like beating yourself up because you don't believe in God. It's like, it just so that's just seems like extra, <laughs> you know, unnecessary. Uh, I, I think it's a problem when you go around and beat up other people for not believing in God, you know. But uh, whatever feels right, you know, and using language or using imagery or 
in whatever ways, you know, whether it's I can't stand the word God or whether that resonates. Uh, I'm not interested in... uh, I mean, I've had this discussion with some others in the kind of recovery community who are more Dharma-oriented who are like, well, you can't do the 12 steps if you're a Buddhist because... You know, the Buddha said there's no God. In fact, the Buddha's talking to gods all the time, you know, and he's very busy with them. (laughs) And it it doesn't seem to me that he was particularly trying to, you know, limit people's sense of, of, of their spiritual connection at all. And anyway, I don't care, you know. He's not around. So I have to solve it for myself now. Yeah. So, uh, one or two more? Yeah. Um, thank you. I uh, appreciate, I greatly appreciate um, the openness of your ideas um, and um, the flexibility. And, and I, th- I think for me that was, um, when I hit the God stuff in the program, that was um, the as we understood him part. Yeah. Um, it was like my saving grace. Um, and, and so I allowed myself and I was... Um, Surrounded by people who allowed me to define that however I wanted to, um, which I'm I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, but I know, um, especially in you know the Midwest, um, there is still a very uh, Christian expectation about God and a higher power. <laughs> and uh, as a non-Christian, um, I find myself having. Uh, I, I find myself, I feel like the more I, um, I embrace these ideas and I embrace these actions, the less I have a need for a higher power. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, but, but I, I still get faced with the idea that if your power isn't bigger than you, you're never going to make it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I'm wondering if you can, if you have any thoughts or ideas on kind of that, you know, that's. Like, thankfully, I had I ran into people that were open, you know, um, but there's a lot of folks that aren't. So, just thoughts. Well, the Dharma is definitely more powerful than I am. The truth is more powerful than than I am. I mean, the Dharma means truth. Uh, so. Like gravity, it's a good example, right, of a power greater than me. And the where I fall out a bit is I, you know, as I said, with higher power, gravity is not like a spiritual power, but if I don't harmonize with it, I suffer the consequences. <laughs> and you know, what if I said, well, I don't believe in gravity. What would that mean? It's fine, great. Just 
would that mean I would float away? I, I, I guess it would. I mean, if, if, if my belief determined what was real. Um, so I'm not sure what the question is. I mean, you know, I, I kind of feel like I love Jesus. I mean, what a teacher, what a master. You know. um, I wish he'd been around longer so that we could have you know, gotten straightened out what he was actually saying. Um, <laughs> the Buddha taught for 45 years, so we have this vast array of texts, so it's pretty easy to go, oh, that one I think, you know, that kind of stands out as probably somebody stuck that in later. But Jesus was only around for a little while, and nobody wrote anything down at the time. And it's like, and they didn't even have an oral tradition. You know, the Buddhists—they started chanting what the Buddhists said right away, and the the monks kept it together. The twelve disciples—I don't know about them. So, (laughs) God bless them. I—I mean, I don't know if you're talking about like how do I deal with those people. Uh, you know, I bless them, you know. I mean... I guess, is it is it a battle worth... What? Is it a battle? Is, is it, it a battle? battle is what fighting? a battle? That kind of uh, bumping up against those ideas. If you make it a battle. I mean... Amen. <laughs> I mean, our whole, you know, our whole world is full of these conflicts. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess when I go to a meeting, that's a place where I want to get away from that, those arguments. It's one of the reasons, you know, we have no opinion on outside issues. So, and we don't have crosstalk. So if one person wants to talk about Jesus is their higher power, fine, you know. I, I, uh, you know, I might not. I might look for another meeting uh, after that. But beyond that, you know, it's just the way I want to take that. And at times, when I'm, you know, present enough to do it, is to notice my reaction. You know, notice my judgment. You know, because that's. That's the spirit both of recovery and of mindfulness is like, okay, this, that's them. <laughs> and it's, you know, what they believe is not a problem unless I make it a problem for me. And so I can notice my judgment because I'm a judgmental person, you know, and, and I think I'm right uh, and I think they're stupid, you know. And so, you know, I get to, look at that and see how that belief that I'm right and that they're stupid causes me pain. And then I get to breathe and try to let it go. So it's practice. So maybe one more. Hi. Uh, You're scaring me now. (laughs) You're looking at something that's written down. 
this is related, but the group I'm in, another 12-step program, says you can learn to live with unsolved. is an unsolved problem and probably will remain so. Um, I want somebody to care about my suffering. And, you know... Oh, you want God to care about your suffering? Yeah. Oh. Well, I don't know what his name is, or her name is, or its name is. I just want something bigger than me and literally bigger than my group's conscience. And it's still there, even though I know that I will probably go to my grave without seeing thunderbolts from heaven. That's all I have to say. Well, I think that's you know a very natural thing. Uh, and it's, you know, one of the sort of prime practices in Buddhism, the practice of compassion, that the phrase that's suggested in practicing compassion is, I care about your suffering. So there it is right there, that, that uh, clearly we all long for that kind of connection. It's probably why people get married. Uh, and... Um, <coughs> And why people form close bonds with others. It's because we want uh, someone to care. As to whether, I mean, wanting some, you know, God figure or God, um, spiritual figure to, to care about your suffering. Um, yeah. Okay, I, I mean, I, I can see that. I, I think that's a, I think it comes out of the same impulse. And it, you know, I think that one of the things that happens as you get older is that you realize that you are still all the same ages you have been. And so, part of you is still a child. I think everybody feels that at one time or another. That you know that you almost have to like open your eyes and go, "Oh right. I'm not, you know, I'm an adult." And you know, how many times do you the older people here, you know, you look in the mirror and go, <laughs> "What?" So I think that longing for this higher power is, you know, not, to, or, or that one to care about me is, is kind of that, I mean, now I'm being Freudian or something, you know, it is kind of that, that infantile, and I'm not calling you infantile, you know. Well, maybe I am, actually. You know, it's that that infantile part of us that does want this protection. You know, and it's very, you know, obviously that's why so many religions have this kind of God, right? Because people have that p- 
part of them that feels so vulnerable because the truth is we are completely vulnerable. So naturally, we want to feel we're being protected or cared for by some larger person. And of course, that does, when you're an infant, you are helpless. And there, hopefully, there are people like that who do, do that for you. There are beings that you might see as being godlike in some sense, since, since they take care of you. And they, you know, so, so as we get older, I, you know, that's still in us, I think. There's, there's a seed of that, at least, an element of that in us, that when we feel vulnerable, that it's easy for us to go back to that sense of, oh, wow, if I only had that uh, figure. And, you know, that's part of the suffering of, of existence is that you don't have it. And I guess psychological growth and maturity is learning to, <laughs> learning to live with that in a way that it doesn't disrupt your life. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.